I'm Billy. I'm Drew. And this is Pilot Club 79. 79. It's good to be still still out there kicking. It's funny, it does seem a long time since we started, doesn't I it? I know, I know, yeah. I know. Epochs. <laughs> Epochs ago. <laughs> How's your week been? Oh, look, it's been it's been nothing short of fantastic. What, what have been some of the highlights? Look, I mean, I couldn't even list them. I couldn't even list the lowlights. It's just been too many to name. My goal for the podcast is to to push you into small talk for these first five <laughs> minutes, and you're resisting. But uh, yeah, yeah. Well, we're going to have uh, a little bit of mid talk about a little <laughs> bit of a mid show. Yep, the Diplomat. Mm. So the Diplomat is a BBC Studio series starring Sophie Rundle. Uh, originally screened in Star- who's starring who? Sophie Rundle. Who's she in it? The main character is it Kerry Russell? Oh, you watched the Netflix one. I watched oh. the BBC Studios <laughs> oh, right. television show, The Diplomat. Good setup. No, no, no. I did watch the American one. But uh, rather right. confusingly, there is also a BBC okay. uh, studio series called, also called The Diplomat, oh, right. which is also a 2023 production. So, really? Yeah, rather bizarrely, we're talking about the, the American television series. That, that could genuinely have been confusing because, yeah. I think so, yeah. So it stars uh, Kerry Russell mm. and it was created by Deborah Kahn. So premiered on Netflix quite recently, and the series charts our protagonist, Kate Weiler. She is appointed uh, at the very beginning of this series, much to her surprise and possibly even chagrin, uh, the new United States ambassador to the United Kingdom. It was a very classy use of chagrin, by the way. Thank you. That was the perfect, (laughs) perfect time to use chagrin. (laughs) Thank you. I I always enjoy when people appreciate the work. Um, so she comes from uh, something of a, a wonkish policy background. She's often operating behind the scenes and she thinks she's being posted to, uh, to Afghanistan, to Kabul. So being someone who's you know, involved in, in these kind of you know, backroom kind of deals and, and uh, sort of deep policy type work, she finds this, uh, this, this posting to be less than ideal given it involves a lot of pomp and, and frippery. So in this opening pilot, she has a lot on her, pa- on her plate. She has to defuse an international crisis associated with the bombing of a British aircraft carrier. We suspect the perpetrators are the Iranians. She has to forge new strategic alliances in London. She has to uh, adapt to the fact that her husband, who is also a, a famous former diplomat, is uh, something of a handbag uh, to her at, in her current posting and we, we think perhaps might not have her best interests at heart. And she also has to adjust to her new place in the spotlight um, as, as a public face and an ambassador, which is something of a ceremonial role as well as a, as a policy role. So the, uh, the, the title of this, of this pilot is called The Cinderella Thing. So there's constant references to her having to be the bell of the ball mm. to announce her, her arrival in, in sort of tabloid style. And there's something almost of a kind of Pygmalion-esque quality mm. to this particular pilot where Kerry Russell, who's an incredibly beautiful, beautiful woman, has to sort of play this kind of dowdy, wonkish mm. <laughs> bureaucrat mm. um, rather than the glamorous Hollywood actress that she is yeah. really almost from the get-go. So mm. they kind of frame this, this kind of Pygmalion transformation by, by uh, positing her at least. The beginning is this kind of frumpy... <laughs> Uh, you know, 
backroom bureaucrat by kind of just showing Kerry Russell with slightly unkempt hair. And, Sli- and like just hair that's not quite, not fully brushed, not beautifully brushed and glossy. And, and wearing, also just wearing like... Wearing pants. <laughs> wearing a pantsuit. Wearing a pantsuit. <laughs> and what, what is quite a nice smart blazer, but apparently is not, is not befitting of a, of a British or a US ambassador to Great Britain. So a lot of this... Is, is is charting this kind of you know my fair lady esque transformation at the behest of her uh, her deputy uh, Stuart Hayford and the CIA station chief. So uh, there's something very entertaining and pulpy about this series that that got me through. I think you know probably some some of the more ridiculous aspects uh, of it. Um, how did you feel about this pilot? My first impression is I'm impressed at your plot summary because. I had no idea what was really going on here. Like, I, I had no sense of what was really happening oh. from a diplomatic perspective. Oh. I, I, I th- like it just kind of just, it kind of almost felt like wallpaper to me. But right. I, I, I found it watchable, nevertheless, in an inane kind of way. So there's so many, I don't know, it doesn't seem to be plot driven in some ways. Like, it seems to be mood driven or just vibe driven. So, and the vibe is strange. Like, it, it's a bit like, West Wing meets Downton Abbey. So you've got this diplomat who comes to the UK, the Kerry Russell character, and there's lots of like, you know, Aaron Sorkin, maybe sub-Aaron Sorkin walking and talking. It's been compared to Sorkin, but also she shacks up in a castle. Yeah. So there's all this stuff. I mean, I'm not sure if that's where the American ambassador to the UK actually lives, but you have these one minute she's walking and talking about, you know, the, the the pilot opens with a aircraft carrier or a naval ship being bombed. So one moment she's walking and talking about this international incident. The next she's kind of learning some nicety of English castle life. So, yeah. And her husband and her husband cops the brunt of it because he's home alone. So he's shocked to find out that there's you know there's no driver for him, but there are six gardeners. So and it comes together in that Cinderella trope at the end where she realizes that the best way to further her policy career is to play the role of a Cinderella figure and do a photo shoot on the steps yeah. of the castle. So yeah. this, this series to me made me wonder, like, is this the future of Netflix? Like the, tra- <laughs> the, the transatlantic geezer pleaser. Like it's a transatlantic geezer pleaser. It just, it's, and it's funny because we're going to get on to an Apple TV Plus show in a bit, but it seems so long since Netflix held the market on pristine <laughs> quality television yeah and, and yeah on quality television but also on a pristine high def look like remember mm. those early netflix films and series they were full of sweeping shots of forests and lakes and it was it was like you were meant to marvel at the high def brilliance of it all yeah apple tv has so cornered that market that this to me maybe felt like the future of what netflix is going to be a flatter netflix a less visually flamboyant netflix and the kind of show where, to me, the stakes were completely low. The stakes were almost non-existent. <laughs> the diplomatic narrative was maybe complex, isn't the right word, but so scrabbled together that it wasn't even that I couldn't follow it, maybe, that I just I didn't have the energy to follow it, but was so inanely watchable despite that. Yeah. I, I, found myself, I found myself just entering a kind of comatose state <laughs> and just sinking into it with no real sense of even why I was doing it, but then 40 minutes had passed. So I don't know. Am I in on this? I guess so. Like the vibe is, it's all about just a vibe. It's it's watchable. It feels algorithmic, this this series. You know, Kerry Russell from The Americans. Mm. Uh, We have, 
you know, like you say, this transatlantic um, narrative, we, you know, a la Downton Abbey. We have the, the kind of, you know, uh, might say some of the hallmarks of, um, of you know, Aaron Sorkin style walking and talking, mm. diplomatic, you know, fast cross-cutting, you know, uh, you know, uh, flash forward to relatively recent, uh, you know, international crises, um, you know, some sort of political machinations are like, are like House of Cards, but none of these things really pursued with any great degree of, of vigour um, or authenticity. It's like a pastiche of former <laughs> Netflix glory. And the the algorithm comments really good because I remember like a while back um, this band Greta Van Fleet. Do you know Greta Van Fleet? <laughs> I do not. Pitchfork did this scathing review of them. They gave their album a one-star review and said, this is a new genre of music. It's music that's simply made to conform to Spotify algorithms. And mm. it's a review that really blew my mind because I'd never thought of a text being created purely to kind of crop up in algorithms. But you're right, that's exactly how this feels. Like if it'll come up next in your feed because mm. it ticks a certain number of boxes and it's going to be more effort to turn it off <laughs> than just to keep it going. It's very watchable. It's very digestible. It's, it's funny too. Like it is weird, you know, it's weird to see Kerry Russell in this role too because... My, you know, I'm so used to seeing her in the Americans as someone pretending, isn't it? Someone pretending to be a loyal American. Yeah, it's weird to see her in a patriotic role. Like it, that just makes it feel artificial in a different way too. Like yeah. in the Americans, her whole persona is American as artifice. Mm. So here, it's that just adds another level to the artifice here as well. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, it's. I think one of the the series, one of the things that the series you know deals with in probably a more interesting way is whether she has the bona fides to be an ambassador. What, what does an ambassador actually do? Mm. You know, is it a ceremonial role, you know, that's a, you know, someone's appointed to mm. be an ambassador on the basis of, you know, their, their wealth, their prestige, how much money they've given in campaign donations to a president. So is it, is it just this, this purely kind of empty ceremonial role, you know, mm. someone who's just, you know, glorified uh, ribbon cutter, or is it someone who is actually engaged in relationship forming, policy creation, and and so on and so forth? And so. and and how will she ever deal with those cheeky English servants? <laughs> I mean, this is one of the funny things. But you're right. Like the series kind of poses that question: is it ceremony or substance? But the series itself is so superficial. Like it doesn't even seem to matter. It's like I feel like this is a show like. I'm not even in or out. It's just there in the world. <laughs> and it may cross my path at some point. It's produced. It, in the it Netflix, may not. The Netflix content factory yeah. uh, churns out another another entry. It's like, I mean, to use another musical analogy, it's like Brian Eno's definition of ambient music. Like when you pay attention to it, there's structure there and intention, but you can also easily ignore it. So like, <laughs> you, you can, so like it's a kind of television. You can put it on your living room. You can sit down and watch it and follow a plot. You also put it on, just walk around and go about your day and just <laughs> pop in every now and then, pop in now and every then for the... And I feel like Kerry Russell's an actor who works for that, right? Because she's she's such a good actor, but she's also the kind of actor that just even in tiny glimpses, she's enjoyable. So yeah. just her whole, her face, her, she's so quizzical and sceptical. She carries any scene she's in. So you could watch this as an ongoing narrative with Kerry Russell or just enjoy it as a series of Kerry Russell moments yeah, that yeah, you walk yeah. into, but in between cleaning the house or so kind of Iran, checking your Insta. Iran, blah, blah, blah. Hey, look, Kerry Russell. <laughs> <laughs> well, funny, it, it also reminded me of that Sean McAuliffe sketch, Spiffington Mance. Oh, yes, yeah. So, like, there's a lot of just like English people doing English stuff. I mean, 
in that respect, it's a bit like Ted Lasso. But hey, it's way better than Tesla, <laughs> Ted Lasso. Give me this. Give me anodyne ambient any day over toxic positivity. <laughs> so the the one thing I didn't like was it it reminded me of Ted Lasso a little bit. But I've got over that, and I'm I'm not in or out. I think it's it's just there. I'm here, and maybe. It, it will stream. It will stream whether you care yeah. whether you care to see it or not. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> what do you, What do you think? Uh, look, you know, I'm, it's probably not my thing, but I can appreciate that it's it's reasonably well made for one of these things. It is. It is a kind of it is a kind of awkward English American. Like it's one of those shows too where every American like it feels like all the American characters are being voiced by English actors putting on accents <laughs> and all the English characters are being voiced by American characters yeah, putting true. on accents. Yeah, that's true. Like none of the accents sound authentic. That's, that's transatlantic television, that's isn't transatlantic. it? <laughs> like every American person sounds like, oh, you're English. Yeah. And every English person, you're American. And that was so Downton Abbey too, like epitomized by, just remember Elizabeth McGovern's just like ridiculous accent. Like, hey, welcome to Downton Abbey. Like, they kind of just like that really weird, like American English. Yeah. It, so it, this is this is mid-Atlantic mid. It's mid, exactly. It's mid, it's mid-Atlantic mid. Um, and look, it. Good luck to it. It doesn't need. It's. <laughs> it doesn't need your viewership, Billy. It, it reminds me of a Family Guy sketch where um Stewie's listening to Carrie Underwood and yeah. Brian gives him a hard go. You see this one, and Stewie's yeah. like Carrie Underwood's just doing fine without you, Brian. She doesn't need your support. That's how I feel about this. Whether I like it or not, it's, it's, it's just doing fine without me. And it's going to keep on streaming. Till the end of the Anthropocene. <laughs> Just going to keep on streaming and streaming away, The Diplomat. That was The Diplomat. One final thing about The Diplomat, sorry. Is, have you seen the reviews are all like, this is an extraordinary, like 94% on Rotten Tomatoes. Oh, really? Okay. So they're like, this is an extraordinary Sorkin-esque thriller. So maybe as a final caveat, we should say, maybe it gets really good. <laughs> but at the moment, it's just it's just out there doing its thing, living its life. <laughs> So on to our second show this week, and mm. this is an Apple TV Plus show, mm. so it's interesting to compare the two. This show must have one of the strangest genesis and genesis of any any uh, television show we've, we've dealt with thus far. It's really weird. So it's, um, it's based on a manga, and the manga is by Tadashi Agi, and the premise is quite unusual. Mm. So it's an English-French-Japanese co-production, and at the start of the pilot, a kind of intertitle comes up saying that we, you can put like you, you need to put subtitles on because it's going to move seamlessly fluidly between the three different languages so it is genuinely a trilingual production at the heart of it is a famous french sommelier i guess or wine collector um named leger mm. and it's about his daughter she's and his mentor his protege so we see a few flashbacks to Leger's relationship with his daughter when mm. she was a child. The series opens with one of these flashbacks and it basically seems like he instructed her, inculcated her into the art of wine tasting to a degree that brought it on abuse. So it would punish mm. her when she didn't get flavours right, would you know, subject her to, you know, you know, like prevent her having food and water until she could, you know, correctly identify flavors, and the result was that she grew up quite scarred, but also grew up with an extraordinary palate. Well, interestingly, like he never he never served her wine, so he worked oh. on, on developing her palate just with different flavors, okay. flavor profiles. So we see that it is it is you know something of an abusive relationship, but the development of the palate took place without 
the consumption oh, okay. of any wine. I didn't pick up yeah. on that. So yeah, she because as an adult she doesn't drink. No, so as no, an she's adult, actually never ever never even drunk wine before yeah. in her life. Uh, okay, that's interesting. So that's that's the backstory, and in the present, her father, who's now living in Japan, calls her to his basically his deathbed, and he's mm-hmm. dying. He's sick. He wants to see her. Um, and she hasn't seen him in 11 years. And by the time she arrives, he's died. And he's left a kind of really unusual will, which says that the, his fortune, which isn't you know, the greatest wine collection in the world, worth you know, billions of dollars, will either go to her um, or his protege. And it's probably it's worth mentioning that the, um, the characters, Camille, the daughter, is played by Fleur Geoffrier, and the protege is Japanese. Issei is played by Tomohisa Yamashita. So... Mm. It sets the stage for a showdown between these two important figures in his life, his daughter and his protege. And what's and I, th- I thought this was a little bit unclear from the pilot, but it seems like this, they they have to try three different wines a month apart and identify their provenance mm. and their content. So they have a month after they've tasted it to try and figure out where it comes from. So that's that's the pilot in a nutshell. It's an unusual premise. Um, what did you think? What was your take on it? Yeah, I, it's it's certainly very strange in its conception. Mm. Uh, being a, a French, Japanese, English, I think, co-production mm. uh, based on a Japanese manga mm. about enology or onology. I don't mm. even know how to pronounce it. Mm. Um, so certainly, certainly an unusual, um, you know, you know, uh, I guess you know, transnational, uh, you know, creation story here. Um, it, it is also an unusual melange of genres as well. Mm. So it does have the kind of hallmarks of a kind of slow, you know, character-driven European drama and almost kind of trauma narrative mm. on the one hand. And on the other hand, this the, the manga story is something of a kind of sporting underdog story. Mm. So Camille needs to defeat a, a brilliant young enologist, Issei Tomini, who's spent his whole life perfecting his palate for wine when she's never had wine herself before. And in order to actually win back her rightful biological inheritance, she has to beat him. So she has to, she has to, uh, you know, surmount him in these three sort of tests of, Mm. of her palate. I wondered Um, in terms of it being a bit of a genre hybrid too, I wondered whether there was a touch of Japanese reality television in there as well. Japanese reality television is so focused on food and also so focused on wacky premises. Mm. This felt like something that could be a Japanese reality television show, yeah. like a contest to, with a huge, huge stakes yeah, to like determine... Yeah, like an Iron Chef type thing. Yeah, exactly. An Iron Chef for, for tasting food. With wine. Rather than cooking. Mm. Um, so, yeah, so, so she basically has to, you know, overcome these otherwise insurmountable mm. obstacles in, mm. in beating him in each of these three tests. So I imagine that subsequent episodes will go through this kind of almost the training montage mm. and leading up to to her the, the competition scenes so it, it does set the stage for quite an interesting kind of you know quasi sporting underdog underdog story and in terms of setting the stage i mean i think that that's a good way to put it because something i found this quite unusual as a pilot too mm. so on the one hand it almost feels like a self-contained film at times. Mm. Like it, it moves so slowly and it's so, as you said, steeped in that European trauma tradition. It almost feels like watching a self-contained film. Yeah. But at other times it feels like a mere prologue or prelude to the series. Yes. So I, I love the premise of the wine tasting competition and I kept on wanting to get to that. But it only 
comes it, up in the very last five yeah. minutes. So and it doesn't really deal with it. it. It leaves a lot of its powder dry. Yeah. Which, you know, it spends a lot of time kind of somewhat laboriously setting up mm. this premise. Well, it's like it sets up the emotional, psychological dimensions of the premise, but we don't get any sense of the logistics no. of this competition. So I, I found it hard to judge what the series would be just because it does feel like a prologue to the series, mm. like rather than a pilot proper. Yeah. I feel like stylistically, mm. to really... I, I'm not that au fait with the, the specific manga. Mm. Um, and you're, you're such a manga fan. I so know, this, is, I know. this is a huge... I spend, I spend this is a know, huge all blind day and spot. all night mangering it up. This is a huge blind um, spot for you. So I, based on the manga that I have, I have experienced, it's, mm. it's very... You know, it's uh, very kind of pop cultural, very mm. sort of action driven, mm. big emotions, big broad uh, characterization. So seems somewhat discordant with the style here, except for a few moments where I think this pilot pops. That's the moment where she starts about she's about to drink the wine. She she breaks the wine glass and mm. shatters everywhere. And there's a really, you know, it's almost like a jump scare. Mm. That That's a real that's a real moment here where this this pilot came to life and kind of emerge from its kind of slightly soporific stupor. And that's interesting because I, I agree about that moment. And there was a moment for me at the beginning that was a bit like that too. And just to jump back a, a pace, I agree with you about the manga stuff. And another way of putting that was I, I wondered where the pacing was going to come from here. So mm. manga is typically fairly fast paced. But also for a television series, when I heard what the premise was, again, I wondered what how it would work as a television series because I... I didn't initially know that there would be a month elapsing between each tasting. I thought it was mm. just basically a tasting in one night, yeah. which again feels more conducive to a feature-length film. But then when I heard the premise, my first instinct was like, okay, that's how they're going to get the longevity. But then I thought, well, how does that look? Like what happens in the month between? So I wonder whether the, like, the pacing is going to be driven by a feature we see early in the series, in the very first scene actually when... The girl, when as as a child, um, Camille can't identify a scent, and her father says you have to sit there. So she can't identify a taste, and the father says you have to sit there, and let it come to you. And then we enter a kind of fantasy world mm. where she imagines herself in a wood, and she's walking through the wood and tasting every object that she sees, and she eventually tastes some moss and realizes that what she's eating is moss. But it's a fantasy sequence that captures something that, to me has often seemed unrepresentable or inconceivable how it is that people who have a specialty in smell or taste get to the taste mm. and get to what it is. And I wonder if the episodes will build their pacing and, and draw on that manga absurdity and that manga hyperbole by having these fantasy sequences in which she chases down the taste or tries to discern the taste. Yeah. The, the closest analogy I can think of is, remember that book film Perfume? Mm. Like that was... Mm not the best book in the world but it does it it goes into smell in more detail mm. than the other book mm. i've read and it or even something you know like not to be that guy but something like proust where you yeah. have that madeline sequence and a, and a taste takes you down a yeah. flight of fancy or association yeah, well, those olfactory impulses make mm. up most of our sense of taste so mm. while we view them as discrete senses one is really mm. much more you know superimposed on the mm. other so the idea that he's getting her to taste moss, which is something that we don't associate with mm. the taste, but more of a smell, is something that you know, I think is quite you know metaphorical of, mm. of, the, of that that that's really sophisticated enology when mm. people are you know describing wines as tasting like like you know cigarette uh, cigars mm. 
um, and soil and there's something uncanny about the way people describe the the taste and the texture of wines think, which is which is multi-sensory i think partly because you know the english language is notoriously impoverished for smell words mm. so i think there are only two or three words in english that are exclusively associated with smell really? yeah wow. like every other smell word has a co- like it has a cognate in some other sense or some other association if I, a guy I knew years ago went to work in a, a, a upscale perfume store in wow. the Strand Arcade, and I remember he said that a lot of working in the perfume store the first couple of weeks was just educating himself in smell vocabulary, and because it's so you know, limited in English, all the different analogies that people use to capture a smell, so something like musky, for example, which of course is also a taste and which has other kind of... You know, so is also a texture. So, yeah, there's something about watching... A show like this, which is all about, you know, olfactory, gustatory discernment, that it's it's very hard to translate into visual language. Yes. So I wonder if those those magical realist or surreal sequences, which are so characteristic of manga, mm. is where that will come to the fore. Mm. And those visualization scenes are almost like her superpower. They're like a superpower. So if you go into you imagine you're know, the sporting montage mm. and you know, that's that's her ability. That that allows her to transcend her competition. Yeah, it's a transformation moment, the yeah. manga. And for that reason I wondered if this was the next step for Apple T V Plus. So I feel like Apple T V Plus has completely outdone Netflix in terms of visuality, right? Mm. It's the most airbrushed, crystalline, precise image you'll ever see. Mm. This felt like Apple TV Plus reaching beyond the eyes to the full sensorium. <laughs> Taste buds, smell, like reintegrating the eyes back yeah. into the body. Yeah. And that this made, is Apple TV is terroir. Yeah, it is. It is. It's like 4D TV. <laughs> and that may explain why the show is quite drab and even vacant visually. Mm. But it feels like it's bypassing your eyes yeah. and reaching directly into your nose and yeah. your mouth. The sensorium. It, that's how it feels. So... <laughs> I mean, again, just interesting to compare to The Diplomat because in The Diplomat you have the pastiche, the echoes, the ghost of this older... Because <laughs> remember when I first saw Netflix high to HD, it genuinely felt like a whole body experience. Yeah. I, I remember exactly where it was, or HD TV. I was at a friend Dave's place when he lived ages ago, lived in Chippendale. We were watching Enlightened. I didn't happen to be with Kyle. I would do mm. the Dave's place. I'd gone over to pick something up, I think, and Dave was like, have a look at this TV, this HD Netflix image. And it was Enlightened, the Laura Dern series. I remember it was like a whole body experience seeing it. It was so immersive. Mm. So I feel I like... I associate that early Netflix aesthetic with, you know, the House of Cards. Absolutely. Fincher, you know, those inky blacks. Absolutely. And just the muted, the muted palette, but something that was, that was ushering in a new realm of kind of hyper-crystalline yeah. uh, visuals. The TV almost felt sentient. It was yeah. like the image. And remember in those early seasons of House of Cards, you get these social... Like, it wasn't such a feature of later seasons, but you get these social media updates from the characters flickering across the yeah, screen. So yeah, true. this television screen felt like an interface mm. with your whole body. Mm, mm. So Increasingly, Netflix feels like a really glossy magazine. Absolutely. absolutely. A, a tabloidy yes. kind of, you know, uh, weekly... Uh, and I think the the diplomat really feels like... Yeah, totally. The diplomat was, you know, was... Well, the diplomat you could even say allegorically is Netflix. You know, trying to trying to transform these kind of rudiments of quality television yeah. to a kind of glossy magazine type aesthetic, or like which if, is something Kerry Russell was resistant to, but then she was like, ah, "I'm just going to go with it." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> which is the Netflix kind of you know uh, you know ethos par excellence. That's, and also, I mean, if it's if we're talking about transatlantic geezer pleasers, 
it's like watching an in-flight magazine. <laughs> yeah, true. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? And, true. and again, like that shallow sense of space in it feels mm. very magazine. Yeah. I mean, another way of putting it, again, television for a plane. Yes. For a plane, for t- in-flight magazine. Whereas this is... This is, it's like this show has tendrils. It's yes. like reaching out, it's mists, it's yes. perfumes. This is television to pull you in. sensorium. It is. So, <laughs> look, and look, for me, I mean, it's interesting too, because as you know, I don't drink, I don't like the taste of alcohol. Yeah. So, um, that made it doubly uncanny. It almost made me think, oh, is this, is this what alcohol is like? The Apple TV aesthetic? <laughs> is it like, is it like imbibing Apple television? <laughs> Maybe the classier drops of red wine for yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. And um, for that reason, I felt like I really identified with the protagonist because she's never drunk. Yeah. I mean, I've never really, I've never liked it. So that just added this additional, wow, is is this is this what alcohol is meant to be like? Yeah. The, the Apple television interface. Yeah. yeah. Did you find this series entertaining? It's a tricky one. I I didn't find it boring. I, there were times when I was like, is this going to be too slow? And there was mm. enough of intrigue to keep me going. I'm not a hard out. But I also feel like I don't really know what the series is going to be. No. It doesn't give much away. No. The hook, I think the outline, plot outline here is, is great, but the hook didn't really come that, you know, that clearly through in the no. pilot here. And like I said, based on the pilot, I did find myself thinking, would this be better as a movie? Mm. Is this, does this lend itself to the pacing? Mm. Even or, with, dare I say it, a manga. A manga. Um, and I wonder if, yeah, and I mean, something I was curious about too is, does that month-long period occur in the manga between each tasting or is that factored in to draw out the television series? Because mm, mm. to me, this makes sense as a great kind of menu-esque film that takes place over a single night. Mm. And, and it seems, yeah, it seems strange to spend a month trying to identify a taste, but maybe that'll give it a kind of quest narrative. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I don't know. I... I don't know. Again, yeah. as with some interesting ideas in this in yeah. raised by this series. So, for example, you know, the you know the the return to a kind of you know authentic, you know, terroir based consumer good mm. in in amongst this kind of you know the crazy you know uh, insubstantiality of of transnational commerce. That's you know. So this you know I don't know in particular like um, red wines are huge in China and Japan. Mm. Um, countries where you know, they feel like they've lost that connection to mm. to the, the earthly to the to the kind of you know material the the substantial you know um that's a I really guess. i really like that that's a really nice point like you're right there is this really amorphous you know english french japanese transnational vibe and there is this very amorphous apple tv aesthetic but mm. it's like but trying to identify the ter- terroir. To, I, was, yeah. I was terrible at French ter- yeah. terroir. It's like trying to get back to some kind of putative real. Yeah. That's that's there's, a really nice a, way to put there's it. A mel- uh, there's a melancholy here, a melancholy mm. for, the, for the real, for the, mm. the, the substance of, 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 of earth and soil mm. and um, Which is, land. narratively, is also her longing for her father yeah. and for that family. Yeah. So in that sense, maybe both that and The Diplomat are both two different transnational television they are, yeah. options. It's true, it's but, true. But one's, it? one's the in-flight magazine, one's grounded in the ter- ter- terroir. <laughs> yeah, the terroir. terroir. I've no, the I've, sensorium. I have no, I have no <laughs> enological vocabulary. <laughs> so look, and for that reason, maybe both series I'm ambivalent about. Like yeah. I I don't know about this one. It, it mm. doesn't give, it actually doesn't mm. give a lot away. Mm. Even though it's quite a long pilot, yeah. it doesn't give a lot away. It's transnational television. It's transnational television. <laughs> and I'm, yeah. Not sure if men are out either. (laughs) 
Okay, moving on to our third series this week in a, a very different kind of British vision. Yeah. Um, this is Wild Isles, the new David Attenborough series. Yes. And it's a look at the flora, fauna and ecology of the British Isles. I love David Attenborough, <laughs> as do you. you do. And Could this be his swan song? They've been forecasting every 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 new uh, television series he brings out, documentary, everyone's like, well, this is this is his swan song. This is this is this elegiac quality. And it, it feels a bit like that, doesn't it? He starts, the first words he speaks at are, in my long life. Yes. And he talks about how he's been privileged to travel all over the world to virtually every major ecosystem, but that what he wants to focus on now is the wonder of what's at home yes. in the British Isles. So a homecoming. It's a homecoming, <laughs> exactly. And so... There's almost that that uh, that iconography of passing it over, you know, that you get in, uh, in the Lord of the Rings series. Yeah, at the beginning, yeah. He's shot against the White Cliffs of Dover. Yep. It's kind of funereal, but in a triumphant way. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's a beautiful way to put it. Yeah, and there's also a sense too, more practically, that he's just not mobile enough yeah. to be gallivanting around the world. So it's... And look, something I was wondering about was, you know, there are quite a few shows that Attenborough is attached to that aren't you know, actual Attenborough shows. Mm. I was wondering, is this going to be one of those glossier or, be honest, more superficial shows that has the Attenborough voice or the Attenborough endorsement but doesn't feel like a real Attenborough joint? Mm. And luckily this this feels of a piece yeah. with his greatest documentaries. It, it feels like if this is the last series he makes, it's a worthy addition yeah. to the canon. A symbolic homecoming. A symbolic homecoming. Yeah, I love that. Um, and look, I think it's a great pilot on its own terms. So it's about the the British Isles, the um, zoology of the British Isles. And it treats a really fine balance, I think, between dealing with stuff that's really unexpected mm. in the British Isles and dealing with stuff that's really iconic mm. and often taking familiar plants and animals and giving them an uncanny twist. So yeah. it follows a real narrative. So I'll just take your audience through it. So he starts with the extreme points yes, of the British the Isles. Extremities, they're they're made the freaks. It's it's incredible. <laughs> he loves the freaks. He loves so <laughs> the extreme points he discusses are Mickle Flugger, so the northern <laughs> the northern tip of the Shetland Islands, so the northernmost extremity of Great Britain, and the only place that orcas breed. He discusses the kind of the Arctic extremities of or Arctic in temperature of Britain, so Scotland's Cairngorm Mountains. Yeah. He discusses the Caledonian forest, which is the last original ancient coniferous forest on the in the in the islands, and he also discusses the oldest oak tree, yeah. which dates from before the Norman, Norman conquest. conquest. So, yeah. between you know the northern Shetlands, the Scottish mountains, the ancient forests, and the oldest oak tree, I mean, I think your reference to Lord of the Rings is good because yeah. he he paints this picture of an of an ancient almost druidic England yeah. that still persists. So that's that's chapter one. Yeah. From there, he jumps back to British icon. So we hear about the humble dormouse yes. <laughs> and its epic path to harvest honeysuckle. Yeah. We hear about badgers, foxes, bluebells, meadows. That's part two. Part three talks about Britain's place in global migration yes. as a migration hub. Then he talks about ecosystems that are unique to Britain, like the uh, chalk streams. And then he talks about maritime Britain and Britain's sea, ocean yeah, ecosystem. Yeah. So he goes from extreme points to the familiar to um, the you know Britain is part of a global network migration to its unique ecosystems to its maritime waters, and ends finally after all this richness with a kind of 
you know, a qualification by saying that Britain is actually becoming one of the most depleted ecosystems in the world. Mm. So there's that that note at the end. I just thought this was an an absolutely majestic overview of the of the islands and featured some extraordinary sequences as well, which we'll come on to in a moment. Yeah. I was hooked. What, what, what did you think? <laughs> yeah, look, I think this is I think this is it's pretty extraordinary. I mean, to 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 I guess arrive at one of the most you know well trodden environments. Mm one of the, the least wild environments mm. left in on on earth um one of the most you know written about you know filmed uh well-trafficked environments too and nonetheless to kind of you know estrange you from it mm. and to make it str- to make it to make it weird again mm. um is or- a, orcas in in britain i know <laughs> is is a real achievement mm. um there was something certainly melancholy about this there was mm. something very literary about it like it, engaging with those kind of ideas about the pastoral and you know the, the comforting quality of of the English countryside and the, the homeliness of it, like it's the Shire. There's mm. <laughs> a film, mm. Lord of the Rings mm. kind of uh, vibes from this, uh, but also you know delving a little bit deeper and just once as soon as you you bring out the the magnifying glass, everything becomes strange and alien mm. and you know unfamiliar. And I think you know epitomised by those uh, they have a great quaint british name like lords and ladies plants oh. it's like a pitcher plant where the uh the flies go to pollinate but they're they're trapped they're trapped through the, the bars of the plant mm. and kept overnight so they can pollinate um the plant before they're released so there's, that, there's that, all... and, and that was a step beyond any plant i've seen because i was expecting that the lords and ladies plant would be a kind of carnivorous like plant, a pitcher but, plant like yeah. a pitcher plant but what yeah. it actually does as you've said is it it only traps the flies or the bugs in it overnight mm. and then releases them and there's this, all these kind of tiered sections of the interior of the plant that ensures that they're dusted with both male and female reproductive uh, it's incredible yeah I, I i think what you said about storytelling is so true too because He's just such a great narrator. He's such a great mm. storyteller. Mm. He has this way of dramatising nature in such lyrical terms without ever entirely anthropomorphising it. Yeah. And I agree with you about, about the melancholy as well. Like you mm. have all these really pastoral landscapes and really iconic landscapes, and yet most of the extended sequences here are kind of nature red in tooth and claw mm. like they're quite brutal sequences mm. unusually brutal for an Attenborough series in which often cute lovable am- animals are preyed upon by larger predators uh, yeah. like by larger animals so there's a real brutality to most of the extended nature scenes paired with this you know elegiac melancholy Englishness that that makes it feel like it's attuned to the present moment yeah. and to a kind of a kind of sadness and anxiety, a global trauma yeah. of which yeah. England is a part. And I think one of the interesting questions about, you know, why another nature documentary about Britain right right now? And I think there's something emblematic about Britain, mm. uh, the fact that it's uh, almost 97% of its original habitats have been, you know, irrevocably altered by mm. by um, human activity. Mm. It foreshadows the na- the the status of the of the of the planet mm. in the next mm. 20 30 years that mm. ev- the, you know our genuinely wild in- environments will be depleted mm. um, these landscapes will be become remnants they will become uh, you know quaint environments in which which are well trafficked fenced off by humans and we use to remind ourselves about what we used to have 
So I think there's something there's something about exploring these environments that are that are that are depleted that that allegorizes the mm. the state of of the planet and I think yeah it does does foreshadow what's the you know the irrevocability of the uh, what's what's happening to nature in the next 20 30 years I think that's a really beautiful way to put it and it 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 kind of clarifies something I felt about the show which is this is not just documentation mm. or information anymore it's almost like aesthetic preservation. Yeah. So I think this is one of his most beautiful series to look mm. at. And, you know, throughout his career, one of the extraordinary things about Attenborough is the way he and his team have paired innovations that take place in the film and media space with their visions of nature. Mm. And this is definitely Attenborough in the in the high-def drone world. There's yeah. so much high-def drone stuff. But... Whereas in other hands and other platforms that can quickly become generic or even invisible, Attenborough and his team use it to kind of draw out the rhythms and ripples of nature Mm. in such a mercurial way. So, so much of this episode takes place at the surface of water. Yeah. Orcas, seals. There's an extraordinary sequence about dragonflies mating where the male dragonfly... Talk streams. Yeah, exactly. The, The male dragonfly has to find exactly the right velocity of running water mates with the female and the female escapes rival mates by encasing herself in a bubble of air and going underwater there's scenes that take place you know between birds across the surface of the water i mean it's all poised at the surface of the water and there's just this incredible yeah rhythm and ripple and i think that to me translates into what i think are the three great set pieces of this episode Mm. the chases Mm. so we start with an incredible scene in which orcas an or- a, a pot of orcas chase down a seal and there's the way they navigate the underwater topography and keep their dorsal fins below the surface of the water is amazing there's another incredible scene where an eagle tries to kill a goose fails the first time gets the second time around and then finally another scene where a, a large gull tries to kill a puffin and the puffin escapes mm. but in both cases like in the first case in the water and the second two cases in the air like you have these fluid choreographies that are just so beautifully attuned to the high def and the drone cinematography. Yeah. And it's it's so beautiful. It is feels like nature being encased in digital cinema yeah. for people in the future. Yes, it's, yes, and, and, that's and, it. And it, is, that's it. and it is melancholy. Yes. And, it, and, yes. And, yeah, and you sense a bit of that in the fact that these three sequences are, are beautiful, but they're brutal. They're not... Like often, you know, in the past, Attenborough will tend towards more eccentric stuff. But mm. this is, there's a real brutality of these sequences and yet they're beautiful. So it's, yeah. it is like, it's like an elegy for the present. Yeah, that's true. Yes, I, I yeah. agree. I agree. And I think one thing that this, this series engages with and has to engage with is obviously the, the human interaction with the biosphere, which mm. a lot of his series does give quite short shrift to and is at the end here. And I think that's consistent with, I think, a movement that, I believe Attenborough subscribes to, and I think he posits that all of us will need to subscribe to, is the, the concept of rewilding. Mm. The idea that, you know, for example, British metalurns are so depleted mm. that um, the, the, they don't exist in their original state anymore. So farmers need to rewild them at different points in the in the, the harvest. That's great. So that so that we can we can eke out this kind of unusual, uneasy coexistence mm. with our natural world. Um, and perhaps this compromise is the best that we can hope for 
in the future. It's like the series itself is a, a gesture of aesthetic rewilding. Yes. That's what it's doing allegorically. Yes. That's right. That's right. So I found this very, even though it took quite a long time for Attenborough to start talking about the, the real you know, elephant in the room, the climate change, mm. uh, you know, um, angle, um, it was already, it was already melancholic mm. and uh, it was like he was embalming mm. these, you know, natural scenes. Yeah. Um, as he was as he was filming them, so yeah, I thought this was beautiful. Yeah, me too. And look, I think beautiful is the word for it. It's it's my favourite show of the new shows this week, easily. And just what an inspirational person too. Like mm. what a just something something about his presence, about his gravity, about his yeah. I love him. I love the show. So yeah, I agree. Beautiful. I'm, I'm a hard in. Likewise. All right, on to our archive corner for this week, and we're going to deal with a big one, mm. a big one, Euphoria. Mm. So Euphoria is an American teen drama series. It was uh, basically the showrunner is Sam Levinson, actually the son of Barry Levinson, famous Hollywood director. It was This uh, is not a Barry Levinson joint. <laughs> it is not, it is not. He is not. He's not a chip off the old block by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, it was created for HBO, and it's actually the fourth most watched HBO series of all time. It was actually based on an Israeli miniseries of the same name, created by Ron Leshem and Daphna Levin. So uh, again, we have that that Israeli connection. Mm. Um, so Hollywood is obviously mining Israel for mm. uh, a lot of its best ideas for a while. The protagonist of the series is Rue Bennett, played by Zendaya, one of the few people who really pulls off the 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 one one mm. word uh, name. Uh, so she plays a recovering uh, teenage drug addict who's struggling to find her place in the world after emerging from rehab but not only this we get to we get introduced to a cast of other characters um, from a, a californian high school uh, so some of the other characters include a uh, jules who's a, a transgender girl uh, so cat hernandez who is a classmate and college freshman christopher mckay who was in dark waters Ah, uh, yes. He was a douchebag in Dark Waters. Yes, yes, yes. Or yes. Deep Water. I'm confused. Yes, Is it Deep yes, Water who, or Dark Water? Yeah, so yeah. he certainly has some issues with his with his sexuality. Uh, and um, yes, so there is also, yeah, so those, those are some of our, our major characters. That, you know, this, we've got star quarterback, Nate Jacobs. Oh, sorry, Nate Jacobs Nate is the Jacobs one who was in. Is, yeah. the, is the one over there. So, so in our pilot, uh, we are introduced to, to Rue, uh, she, we know she's 16, she returns home and she immediately seeks, uh, seeks drugs. So she makes really no attempt um, to rehabilitate and instead uh, just has direct recourse to her, her drug dealer, the first thing she does when she's, uh, when she's leaving. But as we discover through a series of nested flashbacks, uh, she has a, a pretty traumatic upbringing and she uses uh, her, her addiction to, to uh, you know, narcotize her, her pain. So, you know, simultaneously, all of the characters here have very fraught relationships with their parents, and you know, this this series could almost be called you know dysfunction, mm. or instead of euphoria, because there are brief moments of euphoria. Probably dysphoria, dysphoria is is probably the best way of describing this series. So it's it's really you know captured the zeitgeist, mm. and I'm I think part of, part of the reason why I think we. We want to deal with it is because we want to we want to discuss why this might be so. How has this show of all shows mm. really captured teenage life mm. in the twenty first century? Mm. Billy, do you have any thoughts? 
Look, I have to say right off the bat, I thought this was extraordinary. Right, okay. I, I loved it. Okay. I, I, I'd, I'd watched... I'd watched a couple of episodes in the past, but not especially attentively. And going back and rewatching it, I thought it kind of blew my mind. So a couple of observations. Mm. We watch quite a lot of YA stuff on yeah. this podcast because that's a lot of what's coming out right now. And it often has a very maudlin and very morose tone. Mm. This, I thought, I mean, obviously this has that as well, but I thought this had such a propulsiveness and such a peppiness, like just at, at a level, watchability level, it was so compelling. Mm. But I also thought it was it was such an extraordinary evocation of what it must be like to be the generation who grew up after 9-11 in mm. this new world. Because it made me realise how much, because you and I grew up as, we're born in the 80s, but we grew up in the 90s. Mm. And our whole sensibility is so shaped by that centrist 90s. Yeah, that, that well, it, I guess almost the utopian promise for the Berlin Wall. Yeah you know, the narcissistic 90s, the navel-gazing, but there was an underlying optimism. Yeah, and a sense of the end of history as as a trauma. So I think, you know, you grow up in the 90s and it just imbues you with a sense of stability Mm. that's kind of innate and often quite discorrelated with the world around us. Mm. So we grew up in probably the most stable decade, at least on the surface, of the 20th century. And this is exactly the opposite. So it has this extraordinary opening. I mean, the opening montage, I thought, was, mm. was masterful. So it's in, in utero. Oh, so, so, so Rue describes being born, and she describes the, the cruelty of her mother's cervix as her first trauma. So even being born, there's a sense of pain. And we realise why, you know, moments later, because she was born days after September 11. Mm. So the footage of her being born segues into the footage of the Twin Towers in what has to be one of the most audacious uses of that footage I've (laughs) ever seen. And she then goes on to describe how her parents spent the first couple of days of her life just watching the towers falling over and over again. Mm. Um, And then basically goes on to describe how the world feels to grow up in the aftermath of that trauma. And there's, there's lots of ways she puts it, but the most powerful one, I think, is she says it felt like there was no air left in the world. Mm. So you have this you have this kind of character who's born into a world that's already traumatised. So I thought that was incredible. I thought it was really incredible for just capturing the way in which it seems young people act these days. So, you know, there's so, I mean, we're in the middle, obviously, of the second sexual revolution after mm. the 60s. And... With that comes, it, it's a sexual revolution that's taking place in terms of you know more openness to things like being trans in the same way the 60s and 70s gay liberation. But just, I think, a different rhetoric and different discourse of sexuality too. Mm. Like in the 60s and 70s, it seemed like the way that sexual liberation occurred then was all of a sudden sex became something you talk about and it becomes this huge thing that can be a topic of public debate. It's almost like a different thing is happening with this most recent thing where sexuality has become both more omnipresent and more banal. Mm. So it's something that's kind of everywhere Mm. and something that people participate in and not just, you know, people in the bracket in this show, but, you know, people in their 20s and 30s participate in in a much more matter-of-fact mundane and banal kind of way mm. so there's there's a sense and, and i think it's epitomized by the way in which the trans character is presented in the show so in any show made for boomers or for people our age the trans character would be signaled front and center yeah. as a kind of high concept inclusion yes i mean take a show like transparent you know yeah. like, i mean incredible show but no buts it's an incredible show i'm just saying for this purpose 
the concept is there in the title. Whereas here, it was only about two thirds through the show, the pilot, that I kind of cottoned onto the fact that the character was trans. Yeah, and so, it's, it's not even really explicitly highlighted. It's not, it's not highlighted. It's just, and so there's all these things that are a part of the world now. So, you know, sending nude pictures, trans, polyamory, all these things that are a part of the zeitgeist, but that are dealt with in a completely matter-of-fact, judgment-free, almost ambient way mm. and not signalled as being markers of profundity or markers of conceptual prowess on the part of the show. So I just thought it captured... You know, and this is not something that's specific to this particular culture of the show, just the, the changes that have taken place in discourse around sexuality, which mm. is to be both more open and less catastrophic. Mm. And Although... Yeah. Although um, there is there is a banality to a lot of a lot of what happens here, mm. but nonetheless, this series persistently uses a kind of catastrophic register. It, you'd have to say. I mean, it's almost like the uh, the formula that Euphoria hones in on is: imagine the worst possible outcome of this decision, mm. and we'll we'll pursue it. I with, guess with vigor. All I would say is I don't think that applies to sexuality or relationships exclusively anymore. Like it's no. like it's like the show. Everyone on the show is living in the midst of a panic attack. Mm. And the panic attack might be, might be happening in fast motion, in slow motion, or in real time. But, and it made me think, like, what must it be like to be born into this world where you've got the paranoia of 9-11 still lingers, you've got climate change, you've got, you know, just insane stuff happening in the United States. Like, you know, Ron DeSantis, for example, saying that if people teach critical race theory or mention trans lives, they can be fired. Mm. Like, just these incredible assaults on... The, ga- the gains of like the 60s and 70s. Mm. I mean, as someone, as a young person in America, you must just be in a state of trauma and panic all the time, yeah, low level. True. I mean, it's, it's a great scene early on where they do a drill for a shooting. Yeah. And it's just, it's just matter of fact. So it's kind of like the register of the show is like normalized trauma. Mm. And that means it is very traumatic, but also normalized. And it, it exists in this tipsy, queasy, surreal space in between that I thought was just incredible. So I, mm. I what, what did you think? Yeah, look, I think this is this is certainly cut from the same cloth as some mm. of those 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 really sort of gritty, almost fly on the wall, adolescent centric movies mm. that we had in the nineties, like Kids, the Larry Clark type yep. Yep. type shows. Skins. Yeah, those those type of shows that were really explicit, um, really unsentimental, and portrayed quite pessimistic yeah portrayed you know adolescence as this state of just you know grim nihilism Mm. and there is something a little bit more hyperactive about this series but it nonetheless has that has that brutal the brutal the brutality of those larry uh clark series as well as that kind of the at least ostensible kind of verisimilitude of being a kind of a fly on the wall Mm. To these, you know, to these different different dysfunctional, um, familial um, relationships. So, mm. like those, it takes place in a world where where adults are, uh, have kind of uh, vacated the field. Yep. Um, so they they offer no moral uh, leadership. In fact, they're the opposite. They're they're often you know sources you know uh, you know people to be to be evaded. Or, or alternatively, the adults you know, for all that they represent this older stable world, are still just playing out the traumas of their own childhood. Yeah, so there's true. a scene where Ru, uh, not Ru, uh, Jules hooks up with a closeted gay guy yeah. who at the end we learn is the father of the jock. So yes. the adults, although they seem to belong to this stable older generation, they're just more covert about their traumas. Yeah, yes. I, can I just say, 
a slight difference I have in perceptions. Like, oh, look, maybe it's not a difference. I agree there's that grittiness there and that sense of fatalism. But what's extraordinary about the show, I think, is a way in which it cut, there's such a surfeit of trauma yeah. in this that it's almost like the characters realise the only way to deal with it is just to jack into it and flow as best <laughs> as they can through it. So there's so much trauma, the trauma becomes a kind of ambient flow that they move through. So, you know, a lot of TV series and films about trauma, a bit like um, Drops of God, are quite static. Yeah. Whereas here, that everyone is in constant movement. Like it's, a, it's, it's almost like the equivalent of hiding in plain sight or surviving in plain sight is just to keep on moving. Yeah, true. And it's like all the worst thing that could possibly happen happens. Let's let's just let's go with it. Yeah, and and the way they ride that trauma gives the series an extraordinary. You know, I keep saying extraordinary, but incredible mobility and beauty. So the cinematography is so elaborate. The lighting is so elaborate. I've heard that the second season actually uses celluloid which makes it even more beautiful so it has this kind of intoxicating resilience to it which is i guess how young people must feel like you know we we, we've grown grown up in a world where there is huge assaults on marginalized groups where there's climate change where there is still the trauma of the the trauma of 9-11 and ongoing daily domestic terrorism all we can do is to find the kind of the flow the best way to get through it. It reminds me of, you know, Eve Kosofsky Sedgwick has this idea of reparative reading. And she says, when you engage in reparative reading, you extract sustenance from objects around you, even objects that are deliberately designed to thwart you. Mm. So it's like, you know, a, a gay person looking at a text or an African-American person looking at a text and saying, well, look, it is discriminatory, but I'm still attached to it in other ways. So yeah. it's like it's like the characters here, they're so they're so traumatized, but they're so reparative. Mm. Like they just keep on flowing through the mm. trauma mm. in a way that must be amazingly reassuring and compelling to its target audience. Mm. Yeah. I, I, yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like it's yeah, not yeah. it doesn't have that static stage bound no. inertia of some kinds of trauma stuff. The trauma it's almost like the trauma becomes a different kind of high, mm. a different kind of adrenaline, True. almost an addiction. True. That yeah, I think that's right. I that think this pushes show, them through. This show it. is this show is addicted, addicted to catastrophe. Yeah. It's it's a show that like I guess we we watch Bo is afraid and that really that really yep. you know you stood in the shoes of someone experiencing like a panic attack. Mm. This show is like that. Just yep. over 10, 10 episodes. And it's not the kind of I guess trendy addiction to catastrophe of an older subculture like i mean i'm not saying that this is what goth is but you know part of what one one aspect of goth back in the day is deliberately seeking out stuff that's dark or traumatic you know yeah. it's a conscious choice here the premise is well trauma is everywhere anyway yeah it's ambient yeah it's nothing edgy about seeking it out the best we can do is just ride it flow through yeah. it harness it yeah and turn it into a source of adrenaline a high in yeah. itself True. and the results are really beautiful and the characters are all so compelling as a result and i just it's yeah this is a a new miserableism yeah but a kind of miserableism that has a strange kind of ecstasy and joy at the heart of it just because of this this awareness that things maybe are not going to get better in america Mm. in the foreseeable future Mm. the most you can Mm. do yeah is just extract what sort of joy you can while yeah you know while the world uh, goes to hell in a handbasket i have to say that's the euphoria right the title like the euphoria is this this willful resilience that sustains it sorry interrupted you yeah yeah i have to say i i I, i've tried to watch this series a few times Mm. i find it exhausting yeah right i i find this show exhausting 
and and somewhat defeating of 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 pleasure, even the pulpy pleasure mm. of seeing the you know the worst case scenario come to pass for every single character and every single yeah right you know um, event. So that's that's the one thing that I think prevents me from really fully you know engaging with this show as and, much as I want to. And I wonder if what it's going for is that kind of classical catharsis, like that emotional purification of watching it. Yeah. But the flip side is that yes, it is exhausting. Yeah. Look, I think I'm a hard in. Like, I mean, I, like I said, I watched a couple of episodes back in the day and I just, maybe, but also maybe you have a different mindset watching it as a pilot. Because I think if I was in, you know, I, I am going to continue watching the show. It's an episode at a time for me. Like, I think it's not the kind of show that lends itself. To binge watching. Well, maybe perhaps. it does. But for mm. me, at least, it's, maybe it straddles both markets. You know, like you can see how you could just get completely immersed in binge, but you can see how it would work more week by week just to process it. Yes, I think maybe that's the best way to watch it. To process yeah, it. the process. And because when, this, this time watching it around, I knew I was just watching a discrete episode. Yeah. I was more... But look, I, I think this has to be like a defining text of this generation. And I think for people who aren't a part of this generation, like a really powerful insight into... You know, things that from a distance are often pathologized, like their anxiety, their pessimism, you know, ang- you know, feelings about the future. Yeah, I-, I thought it was, I thought it was masterful. Billy, the kids are not all right. Yeah, that's that's, and yet they are. That's the vibe. <laughs> they're not, and they are. So look, I thought it was great. Um, in terms of next week's archive corner, yeah. um, look, it's a little bit of a basic choice, but we've done a coming of age show this week in Euphoria. We've been watching a lot of Kerry Russell. Let's go back to the curls with Felicity. Okay. So I just, I just, okay. I've, I've realised. I've this, never seen the show. I've realised this way. I watched the first season back in the day because one of my friends, Christina Janchek, shout out to Christina, was really into it. Um, yeah, I, I've just been realising how much more Kerry Russell I need in my life. Like, I was talking with Dave last night. We were talking about like just how great her, her face is, like the quizzical, searching, sceptical. So. Yeah, let, let's do Felicity. We've done, I feel like it's Ally McBeal adjacent. Yeah. We've yeah. already done Ally McBeal. Yeah. So let's... Felicity. That sounds great. Let's do it next week. So um, I also... Final thing I was going to say is I, I did feel like the natural progression this week would have been to do Euphoria before Wild Isles. <laughs> I, I watched them in that order and Wild Isles was, even though it's melancholy, it was a nice come down from Euphoria. Yeah, I reckon. <laughs> so if you're watching Euphoria, just give yourself a bit of David Attenborough. <laughs> Palette cleanser. A bit of David Attenborough afterwards. <laughs> anyway, I'm Billy. I'm Drew. That was Pilot Club.